The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world. And I put a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'll be exploring spiritual intelligence, taking leadership to a higher level. My guest is Cindy Wigglesworth, author of SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. And I was so excited to find out about this book. It actually hit Amazon at the number two ranking in both business and spirituality on the same day. So that was amazing. And it recently won a Hoffer Award, which is a, an award given to books that come from small publishers. And it was named Best Spiritual Book of 2013. So let me tell you a little bit about Cindy. She's founder and CEO of Deep Change, a multinational network of experienced leadership development consultants, executive coaches, leadership development trainers, team facilitators, and multiple intelligence experts. She and her partners work with highly successful leaders who strive to push themselves to the upper limits of leadership capacity. In other words, leaders on the edge of greatness. And Cindy recently recorded a TEDx talk in New York City, which is going to go live at the end of the month. So be sure to visit her website, deepchange.com, to get a view of that. So now let me welcome Cindy. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Thanks, Olivia. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Cindy, we're all pretty familiar with our intelligence quotient or IQ. We get tested from the time we're little. Um, And then a few years ago, Daniel Goleman introduced us to the idea of emotional intelligence, which seemed to fill a big gap in understanding the skills needed for success and happiness. And now you're introducing the concept of spiritual intelligence. So what exactly is spiritual intelligence and why do we need it? Well, I'd like to be really clear that it's not about religion, although religion can support people in their spiritual work. And spirituality and spiritual intelligence are two different things, because sometimes people will push back and say, well, you can't measure a person's spirituality. We're innately spiritual. And I would agree with that. What distinguishes spiritual intelligence is that it's a set of skills. So it's not about your belief system. You get to keep your beliefs. It's not about whether or not people are innately spiritual. That's like saying people are innately emotional beings. Yes, we have emotions, but we are not born emotionally intelligent. So this is a set of skills, just like emotional intelligence is a set of skills. And the the key here is to distinguish which skills are important for you, for your life goals. My life experience is, is that most of these spiritual intelligence skills have been very important for me as a human being, for personal growth and happiness, and as a leader. They have really been crucial. So what inspired you to look for this kind of intelligence? Like what was missing? Uh, You know, I I often sort of tell the story of my young adulthood, which is a bit embarrassing, but (laughs) truthful. (laughs) I think we all have those. (laughs) We all have those memories. Um, I figured out fairly early that I was good at school, and I thought the key to success was going to be IQ-related. So I I really threw myself wholeheartedly into my education. I was also a feminist at the time because a lot of things were denied to women. Women were just getting into medical school, things like that. So my focus was on, you know, I'm going to conquer the world through IQ. 
And I went to wow. Duke. I went to Duke. I got my bachelor's and my master's there, did really well, got out into the world, went to work for Exxon, which is now ExxonMobil, mm -hmm. and thought I was going to, you know, like become the vice president of human resources just based on raw IQ. Uh, <laughs> I was embarrassed, you know, in reflecting on it to think about how, you know, it's a 20 something thing in part, but it was also mm. partly that I thought, <clears throat> I thought IQ was everything. It's like how I would go into meetings with people who had 20 years of experience and tell them how to run their business. <laughs> and, you know, I, I consider it a tribute to the company that they didn't fire me. Oh, but yeah, so instead they gave me a precious gift, which was some feedback and uh, basically told me you need to develop some interpersonal skills. And I like to laugh that when engineers are telling you that you need to develop your interpersonal skills, there's probably an issue there for you to look wow. at. <laughs> That's an understatement. Oh, great. So there was no EQ work back then, unfortunately. So I had to sort of stumble my way through learning what we would now call emotional intelligence skills or interpersonal skills. But as I did that, I found that it had a huge impact on my productivity, on my leadership capacity. <clears throat> my performance numbers went up. And I just was happier as a person. Like, this stuff actually worked. As I started doing additional work outside of Exxon, I kind of got into this whole personal growth pattern of like, what else do I need to know? What else do I need to know? <laughs> I know like, like, I'm a junkie, right? Oh, man. I don't know if you remember the Nightingale Conan days when you used to get these uh, cassette tape packages with like oh, six or 12 of them in a package. Do you remember that? I had many, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I had a long commute, so I listened to Nightingale Conan tapes like crazy. Mm -hmm. I was reading books in my spare time as much as I could and just going to workshops and doing a lot of work on myself. What I did not realize is that more personal growth, spiritual growth work was changing my leadership style just as the interpersonal skills had changed my leadership style. And I didn't have the aha moment until I had a life crisis coincide with a leadership crisis. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And the leadership crisis, by virtue of coming after all this spiritual growth and at a moment when I was being profoundly humbled by heartbreak, mm gave me an opportunity to see a different way to lead. And reflecting on it afterwards, because it was so surprisingly successful, I was like, I want to do that again. Like that Cindy that showed up was so much more humble and open. And like, how do I repeat this? You know, so I, I started thinking about it and I realized it was all of this spiritual growth work that I'd been doing which I would now call learning to shift out of ego and shifting to operating from my higher self that had enabled this leadership success. I got curious about where is this in the leadership literature? This has to be out there somewhere. Someone's have to write about this, you know, hmm. and I, I couldn't find it. Interesting. Yeah, which was driving me a bit nuts because I'm very logical, right? And if something's <laughs> valuable, it's like, this makes no sense. Why is this not being researched? Or the fact that it was so powerful that nobody would ever written about it before. That's amazing. Yeah, or at least not that I could find, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, Goldman's book came out a few years later. Daniel Goldman's book came out. and. Mm -hmm. I was just so impressed by how the research, and there are many researchers, Goldman and Boyatzis being two of my favorite, who had looked at emotional development and how do you get EQ as a set of skills with a lot of research explained in a way that you could teach this in an engineering-based organization. Mm. And I thought, this is fabulous. So somebody in the world of multiple intelligences, because this was all new as an idea to me, like, oh, there's more than IQ. We can call this an intelligence. Who's doing the equivalent work on this ego, self, higher self switch to, for leadership? And I couldn't find it. And eventually the idea would not let go of me. I couldn't sleep and decided, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, if I ever want to sleep again, I'm going to leave and go do this work. So uh, that's how it all came to be. Fascinating. So um, can you... If you feel comfortable, elaborate a little bit, um, because one of the things that I've seen, especially, I come from a technology background, and everywhere I worked where the technology would increase and the technical skills and specialization, it seemed like 
the leadership was threatened in a way. If they had a command and control style, it it just could, didn't work very well in an organization where perhaps a lot of people knew a lot of had a lot of knowledge that the leader didn't have. And so I saw this, a lot of the companies where the leadership was maybe very old school really mm-hmm. struggled and had the greatest problem. So I'm wondering if, if that was the shift you saw um, uh, uh, because the, the companies where the leaders had humility, right. even just that little piece, seemed to be much better. Can you expand on that? Sure. You know, the high IQ people, which... I deal with a lot in my executive coaching practice have, have often come to the conclusion that they have to be the expert in the room. Like that's somehow become an expectation. It's actually a burden, but they feel like it's a weakness to not have the answer. And so they somehow get trained. And I was totally in this camp of you need to have, you know, the HR answer you need to, cause I was, my field was HR. You need to have the answer, which I find hysterical that I was working in human resources without any EQ, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> that says something right there. But you know, in a way it was great cause it pressurized me and forced me to learn it quickly. Mm-hmm. But yes, that was absolutely what was going on. The expert Cindy had no energy to show up as an expert. And in this particular leadership crisis, I had been transferred into the chemical company where I had never worked before. I'd only ever worked on the oil side. So I had the advantage of not knowing a lot and and having my heart broken kind of all at the same time so that there was no showing up and telling going on. And command and control, one of the ways I think about it is it's telling versus collaborating Mm. or asking. So the Cindy who had to have the answer, who had to tell people what to do as sort of thinking that was my job, you know, was to show up and tell, didn't have energy to show up and tell people what to do, didn't have enough background to show up and tell people what to do. But I had enough um, maturity to show up in a sort of more Socratic asking questions way, not like Socrates, because Socrates was kind of, he had the answer, he was leading people to it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the answer. Right. Right. (laughs) So it was sort of like leading the group to discover its own answer, which sounds like just facilitation, but it felt like not just facilitation. There was something else going on there with skillful questioning and being present to what was trying to be born in the midst of a tremendous amount of conflict that was going on inside the organization at that time. In any event, it was clear that the telling style of leadership, which might be thought of as command and control, was clearly not going to work. I hadn't, did not have positional authority to tell people, but I did have an expectation that I was going to unlock a very expensive initiative that was stuck because of people resistance issues. So I was supposed to come in and wave a magic wand and unstick this gazillion dollar project. Wow. The predecessor in my job had quit the job, quit the company and left town. She was so frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) So So were you successful? Yeah. But but I don't want to say I was successful because that feels like the wrong space, if you know what I'm saying. You held the space for them to be successful? That that would be the way, or another way I prefer even to think about it is I got out of the way of it becoming successful. Old Cindy would have modeled in it. The newer version of Cindy that was showing up was smart enough to get out of the way of what needed to happen and to midwife it, in a sense. So. Yeah, it was a powerful learning moment for me, and I really spent a lot of time afterwards saying, I want to do that again. So <laughs> it's like, how do I do that? <laughs> it's, I think that's so interesting because I think I look back at the greatest catastrophes, and they've often been these experiences that have fueled the most amount of growth. So I'm sure when it was going on, you were miserable, but in retrospect, it's like, oh, thank you for all those catastrophes, right? Exactly. You know, if I look back over my life, those moments that were the most heartbreaking, challenging, and difficult have enabled me to grow in wisdom and compassion, which I think was my larger personal commitment to this incarnation. You know, it's like, why are you here? It's like, I want to be a good human being. 
Um, okay, great. We're going to put you through the ringer. <laughs> yeah, we're ready. <laughs> well, we're just about up on a break. So I'd like to um, to go to the break. And when we come back, I want to just maybe dive into a little bit more about how you got started once you figured out what you had to do there. So please stay tuned, everyone. I'm talking to Cindy Wigglesworth, author of SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. And you can learn more about Cindy at deepchange.com. We'll be right back. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Our workplace is dynamically changing. How do you stay ahead of the curve with respect to learning and training? Tune in every week to The Future of Workforce Learning and Development with host Pamela Robinson. You'll learn about real-world strategies, solutions, and resources that will showcase these changes and keep you ready for what's next. The Future of Workforce Learning and Development is heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kirk Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. So before the break, we were talking about how Cindy actually got into a crisis that led to this research. And so, Cindy, can you tell me how you define spiritual intelligence? Sure. You know, I'm, I'm really super careful with my words. So an intelligence is an ability, it's a set of skills, it's specific behaviors, it's something that's describable and measurable. And so I wanted to, like, have an overall definition, and then I wanted to have a set of skills that would go with that. So the overall definition, when I was starting to define it, I was looking towards who are the spiritual exemplars that people point to, the spiritual leaders. And if you ask a lot of people that question, and I've asked thousands of people that question now, (laughs) you get similar names. And so people will say major religious figures like Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, Abraham, Lord Krishna, the Dalai Lama. They will say um, people who are religious and or political leaders known for sort of a nonviolent stance like Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King and Aung San Suu Kyi from Burma. Mm -hmm. And you start teasing apart, you know, it's not so important the name, but tell me the characteristics that you admire. What is it that you admire about these people? And the same kind of characteristics would come up again, like they're loving, they're compassionate, they're wise, they're humble, they're peaceful, they're authentic, forgiving, Mm. you know, inspiring, all these words. And so I said, okay, that's what we're trying to create, how do right. I describe it in one sentence? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and then how do I describe it as a set of behaviors that can be taught and measured? Hmm. So when I wanted to describe it in the one sentence summary, the word love kept jumping out at me because, you know, it's sort of love your neighbor as yourself and the golden rule, these things that people often cite. 
But the word love in English is a very sloppy word. So I was thinking, you know, I don't want to use agape and philia. Those kind of words turn people off. There's got to be a simpler way to talk about love instead of having a book about it. Like have what would be a more concrete way to operationalize that word. And I found this saying from the Eastern traditions that love is a bird with two wings. One wing is compassion. The other wing is wisdom. If either wing is broken, the bird cannot fly. Mm, that's beautiful. I got goosebumps when I found that. <laughs> I, I mean, just got I them did. now. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Because it was like the best of the mind, wisdom, the mm-hmm. best of the heart, compassion, mm-hmm. both needed for loving action. And in Which, balance, right? In balance, in balance, right. So compassion without wisdom can look like codependent enabling. Wow, right. Wisdom or head knowledge without any heart can come across as robotic and actually do harm. So either one alone can do harm. Together they create loving action. So wow. I was like, okay, cool, I got it. So spiritual intelligence is about behaving with love. The word behave is really important because I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have noticed that it's much easier to love other people when they are not around. <laughs> right, right. Yes. When they do what you want. <laughs> yes, but, you know, in theory, I love all of humanity, but I get on the highway and they drive me insane. So <laughs> how do you behave with love? Not just think about being loving, but show up with loving behaviors, which is kind of what these spiritual leaders do. And then the other distinguishing characteristic that I focused on was this calmness, this centeredness. Instead of acting from ego, which is reactive and fearful and off-center, there is sort of this calm, deep center that, you know, people say, well, Jesus threw the money changers out of the temple. Yes, and I kind of envision him as setting boundaries with a calm center. Mm-hmm. I would see that from Yoda. People sometimes cite Yoda as a spiritual leader. Like Yoda could go out and defeat the empire with calm at mm-hmm. his core. So the end definition is it's the ability to behave with wisdom and compassion while maintaining inner and outer peace regardless of the situation. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a goal. <laughs> to, I know. To aspire. Wow. Yes. People often ask me, can you do that? And I go, yeah, but don't expect it every minute. Yeah, right. Because (laughs) you mentioned in traffic, I think that's one of my Achilles heels where, and I try sometimes to just, if somebody cuts me off, I try sometimes to have empathy. Like, oh, well, they're probably in a hurry for some reason that's beyond what I know, but but good or, you know what I mean? Just Mm -hmm. if it just even placates me, I'm happier because then I don't get upset and start driving like that too. Absolutely. And there, one of the ways I distinguish EQ and SQ is that we have these fight or flight reactions that are triggers in our limbic system. EQ helps us manage our triggers. SQ helps us get rid of them. Oh, that's an interesting nuance. Wow. Yeah, because I've actually done a lot of work around clearing trauma, which has helped me not have so many buttons or, you know, be triggered by um, external stimulus. That's really interesting. So so now we were talking before the break about you were working for a division, a chemical division of ExxonMobil, and you were thrown into a place where you were humbled by a personal experience and then not being the expert and came to this kind of understanding and, and really started to treat them differently. So tell me a little bit about how you treated them, maybe even give examples, and then how did they react? Because I'm sure they weren't used to being treated like this. Yes. What I would say is, not coming in with an answer and not coming in with an aggressive question or shooting on them in any way. Uh, I think people are used to being shooted on, S-H-O-U-L-D, should. <laughs> yes, good. <laughs> like you should be on board with this headquarters initiative. What's wrong with you, Mr. Plant Manager, that you have not gotten on board? Well, as soon as I go, if I had, which I didn't, but as soon as someone would go in and get aggressive with their questioning that has that should or shaming implication, people get defensive. And then my ego meets their ego, and it's like two mountains rams in rutting season, you know, 30 miles an hour and 30 miles an hour, kaboom, and you have a 60 mile an hour impact. Right. Um, 
<laughs> Most people get knocked out and nothing gets done, right? Exactly. You know, it's like the essence of drama in life, isn't it? Is that one ego collides with another ego and all kinds of garbage takes place. Yeah. When I came in in a very relaxed, non-knowing, really trying to be lovingly present, and I'm going to retrofit my presence to say I would now put that definition on it. I was genuinely open and seeing the other. And I think I see you is one of the great gifts we can give to someone else. So when I went in, I didn't have baggage. They didn't know me. They, they knew I didn't know anything (laughs) about the chemical business. (laughs) And so they would just start telling me, here's how I feel. Here's why I feel that way. Here's what we're worried about. And in teasing apart what they were worried about, they calmed down so my lack of ego, I think, calmed their egos, and then both of our higher selves came forward so that we could problem-solve constructively. If you were going to fix this situation, what would you do? Mm. It became us together allied in the greater good of the company as opposed to headquarters versus field, which was kind of what we were locked into at that time. Wow. So they were being... Uh, forced to collaborate and or asked, I guess, invited to collaborate in order to be Told. successful. They will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah should it, right? <laughs> oh, wow. And, and, you know, you tell powerful people, you have to do it this way, and I don't really want to hear from you anymore. What are you going to get but resistance? Yeah. Right. Well, so did did you find most people felt safe fairly quickly, or were there any kind of coaching processes you had to do with people or did did they have were there crises along the way when this was going on you know the the headquarters people i connected with pretty quickly because i was on the headquarters team and i was sitting in the same location with them and got to know them pretty well and i was asking them questions as well because as usual guess what both parties had legitimate perspectives on the problem all right So it was not an either or, it was a both and, which is another distinguishing characteristic, I think, of SQ is that it requires, and this is actually skill four in my model, Mm. complexity of thinking, not complexity of like how many engineering formulas have you mastered, but complexity of perspective taking. How many perspectives can you hold as being simultaneously true? All of them partial, but all of them true. And when people know you get them, like you really truly see their point, mm-hmm. it's part of this de-escalation that happens that then allows everybody to focus on a larger problem. Right. And in fact, that reminds me because I know it's something I read of yours talked about customer service. And I remember having an experience is that I, I called the phone company. They were so nasty to me. Mm. And I said, I'll never get that service again. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I remember switching and going to another phone company, when I called, they were not able to solve the problem, but they were very empathetic. At least, mm-hmm. you know, they, they said, wow, that's really a shame. Now, I will say that now that's kind of standard. I mean, they figured out that that's what works. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a happy middle there where I don't, uh, it's more important for me to feel heard and valued than it is actually to solve my problem. Yeah, I think I think that's such a desperate human need. We are profoundly lonely in our industrialized cultures. We have become so good at task, we have forgotten about relationship. Mm-hmm. And even as we move into EQ, which is getting good at relationship, which is a great first step, then the next step to me becomes SQ, which is in service of what? What higher purpose? Because purpose and meaning... Without those, I think we're starving. So did the people you worked with at Exxon, did you talk about that, sort of having this common purpose and um, building maybe a vision statement and things like that? There was a vision for the project, which was very, you know, like best practice kind of oriented. Mm-hmm Classical for its time, but I think the unspoken, unaddressed values which got highlighted during this process were were around humans. The field was concerned about if we get too efficient too fast, I'm going to have to lay people off. Mm. 
Yeah. So one of the things we had to look at, we actually built a model for it, would be like how many people will it take to staff these various processes? And if we're gaining efficiencies from that, how quickly would we be expected to capture them? And would we have means available for placing people into different roles and training them into different roles so that we could minimize any layoffs? Well, that's a really legitimate concern. Right. Yep. And once we got that out on the table and addressed it and built a model and people felt like, oh, they're listening to us and helping. We are collectively doing this. We are addressing the human issue. It's like, oh, okay. So I would say it was more implicit than explicit at that time. Today, I would make it more explicit. Okay. Well, speaking of models, so I understand and from what I've read there was a lot of data that you gathered. Tell me a little bit about the research side, because mm-hmm. I'm a data geek as well. Yes. Um, you know, that, that was allowed you to really have a robust model here. Yes. So EQ had the benefit of many universities all researching it with lots of bottom-up data gathering. When you have graduate students who are basically free, you can send them into the field and say, go find people with good interpersonal skills and chase them around and figure out what they're doing differently. Um, There's a little bit of a shortage of saints and sages. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. (laughs) And I'm a solo person. I funded all this research myself. I did not have a university behind me, and I didn't have hordes of graduate students. So I've actually hired PhDs to make sure this was a rigorous process because I'm a Vulcan at heart for those people who know Star Trek. And if I ever wanted to take this back into a corporate setting, I needed to be ready for skepticism, which I consider healthy. Mm-hmm. So, like, what's a valid research model that we could use, given that there's not a million saints and sages to chase around, and I don't have hordes of graduate students either? What we ended up doing was a knowledge-based hypothesis saying, you know, based on these exemplars that are consistently admired, there's something about these exemplars that's describable. Let's see if we can describe it as a set of behaviors If they are behaviors, they have to be teachable. So you have to be able to describe every skill from novice to expert level. If you can then do that, you should be able to write a survey, an assessment tool, Mm -hmm. and you should be able to do the usual psychometrically sound solid survey creation, solid survey testing to validate your hypothesis. So you start with this hypothesis that the spiritual leaders that we admire have something relevant to say for leadership. Is Are you able to describe it? Can you validate it? And then can you cross-correlate it to something that shows that it's relevant for leaders? So we have been through the careful validation of is it age-related? Because if it's not age-related, it's not a skill. That's kind of one of the things. If it's a trait, you're born with it. If it's a set of behaviors that you learn over time, you should have a positive, strong correlation to age, which we did. Mm-hmm. Can, can you do a construct validation on it? In other words, have people write essays or do interviews or both, which is what we did, and then compare the results of that to the scores on the assessment to see if the assessment is analyzing and scoring what it thinks it's analyzing and scoring, which it, it is. And then the final stage of the research was the cross-correlation There is a tool developed by some folks at Harvard designed to assess stages of ego development. My hypothesis was that my tool would be positively correlated to more mature stages of ego development, which have also been shown to be related to leadership capacity. And that research on the maturity assessment profile is what that tool is called, is available through the Harvard Business Review article on seven transformations of a leader. So I thought if I can correlate my SQ21 assessment positively correlated to stage of ego development measured on this maturity assessment profile, then my hypothesis will at least not have been disproved. You have to prove correlation before you can prove causation. Mm -hmm. So we did, in fact, show a very strong positive correlation between the SQ21 skills and higher stages of ego development. The ego in that sense is talking about maturity. So how mature is the leader? How able are they able to put aside small self and engage with the perspectives of others and engage with what is good for the group, not just good for the small self? 
So all of that research was super exciting to me, and we had to complete that before I felt good about writing the book. So we completed that in 2008, and then I started working on the book. Wow, that's amazing. Well, thank you. Um, so we're about up on a break again, and um, I would like to, maybe when we come back, talk about some of the things that we look at as these dimensions of um, of spiritual intelligence. So my guest is Cindy Wigglesworth, and she's author of SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. You can learn more about Cindy at deepchange.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. the boardroom to you voice america business network does your business like many face obstacles to becoming successful would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week tune in for the second stage with hosts brendan anderson and jeffrey cadlick we'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, this is Olivia, and I'm here with Cindy Wigglesworth, author of SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. And we've been talking to Cindy about, or Cindy's been sharing about her experience of how she actually came upon the feeling that there was a need for this measure and giving a little bit of her early experience and then some of the ways that she actually performed the analysis. So we've been led up to it. Um, so Cindy, could you share some of the things that you actually measure and maybe some of the questions, if there's different categories, just sort of an overview of this assessment? Sure. So there are four quadrants of emotional intelligence, and there are also four quadrants of spiritual intelligence. The four-quadrant model of Goleman and Boyatzis was my starting point as I was thinking about this thing. And I thought, you know, SQ is like EQ on steroids. It's like one step up from EQ. So whatever I describe should be more difficult than what is typically described in an EQ assessment. So I, I started with building this four-quadrant model where the upper left quadrant is ego self, higher self, awareness. And it's about how aware am I that I have an ego and how aware am I of listening to the voice of my higher self and really discerning what is my purpose and what are my values. So it's all interior work here. Okay. So awareness of your life purpose, awareness of your values hierarchy, awareness of your own worldview, like we all have a view of the world and a set of beliefs and assumptions mm -hmm. through which we filter and make sense of the world. If you're raised in the United States, you have an American worldview. That's not a universally held worldview. If you go to Europe or you go to Africa or you go to Asia, you will find Latin America, you will find different worldviews, different perspectives. So am I aware that my perspective exists and is not the only perspective that someone might have. 
So let me ask you just a little bit about that. Have you found mm-hmm. that people who travel more around the world would tend to have a higher SQ? Well, tend to have higher awareness of worldview. So okay. this particular skill is very much enhanced by traveling because in the second quadrant, which is universal awareness, one of the skills is being aware of the worldviews of others. And mm-hmm. skill one, awareness of your own worldview, and skill seven, awareness of the worldviews of others, develop together. Oh. It's in being exposed to somebody else's perspective that you have the sudden realization, oh my gosh, I didn't know that I had this perspective because someone has a different one. And, you know, simple things like what is rude or what is polite varies tremendously from culture to culture. Eye contact is considered essential in the United States. It can be considered aggressive in other cultures. Oh, right. Yeah, so, like, I would have never thought that if I hadn't run into somebody who had a different perspective, you know. Mm -hmm. So cross-cultural training getting exposed to even diverse cultures inside your own country. You do not actually have to leave the country. Most cities have multiple cultures living within them. Getting exposed to someone who's a different ethnicity, different religion, whatever, will help you understand your own assumptions about the world, which are really key. Fascinating. Yeah. So so quadrant one is all about being aware of yourself learning to hear when your ego is acting up, learning to hear when your higher self is calling you forward, and selectively listening to the voice of your higher self. So that's probably the single most important takeaway from that quadrant. Okay. So then you said quadrant two Two. is being aware of others. Others and the world. So it's called universal awareness in the EQ world, the Goldman model calls it social awareness. I've sort of taken it up a step to universal awareness. So being aware of the worldviews of others at this point becomes a way beyond average level expectation. At the high level of that skill, you can put yourself in the mind of any other person, period. Sociopath, genocidal dictator, pick mm. your pick your person. You can humble and break down your own assumptions about the world to say, if any person would do this, then I can get in there and figure out how that could be so. What biology would they have to have? What mm-hmm. cultural training would they have to have? What suffering must have occurred in their life for them to reach the conclusion that the behavior they're doing is a good behavior? You know, I often thought about that with the world's perhaps number one enemy or arguably mm-hmm. um, Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. That right. we all hear stories, and this is also true from people in prison, that there's a lot of abuse at a young age, and we, mm-hmm. we think people are born bad, but I really think a lot of it is that early trauma or, or situation that um, yes. you know, affected them that way. And there may be genetic predispositions, there may be neurological damage, but it interacts with their environment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the important thing is to say the behavior's not okay. This exercise is not to say, oh, what he did is fine. Right. No. The behavior is to say, I can see why he did it. And from that perspective comes not just compassion but wisdom because if you can see the root causes of why people would end up thinking that other people are somehow subhuman, Mm -hmm. which is a huge, long history, a human problem, not just a Hitler problem. This is a human problem. We other people. We make them other than us. So if we can dig deeply into what creates, what are all the factors in creating a process by which we other someone and subhumanize someone, we're getting really at some root causes of evil in our world. So is there any way we can... wisdom building. <laughs> is, I'd love to have politicians take this test. <laughs> I think um, I would vote for them based on this score alone. Based on this particular, even this, this skill would be hu- hugely helpful. Yeah, just and, this quadrant. <laughs> yes, but, you know, the complexity of their thinking and their awareness of the worldviews of others, complexity of inner thought is quad one and worldview of others is quad two. If you could just get those two measures as, like, pre-election screening, wouldn't that be fabulous? Oh, it would. It would just be amazing. Okay, so tell us about three and four. Yeah, quadrant three includes self-self-mastery, ego self, higher self-mastery, as the sort of core skill is learning to keep higher self in charge. So in quadrant one, you learn to listen to your higher self, you get really clear with it, you learn to distinguish when is the ego speaking and all little games the ego is playing. 
And then you learn to shift. So the key to quadrant three is you want to live your purpose and values. You want to live from your higher self. And you want to find that place in you where you can sustain faith in something even during dark times. Mm. So that all sort of rolls together. And then the fourth fourth quadrant is the outcome quadrant. And what you get if you build enough of one, two, and three is you get to this place of what is called social mastery and spiritual presence. Mm. These skills in there include being a wise and effective teacher and mentor, being a wise and effective change agent and leader, making compassionate and wise decisions, being a calming and healing presence in the world, and aligning with the ebb and flow of life. And that's kind of sensing into the what is trying to be born and learning how to go with the river instead of rowing against it. Yeah, and you know what I like about this that I think is worth mentioning is we don't have to be corporate leaders. I would say you could meet some person at a checkout in a grocery store and they could have these qualities and make a difference in how I feel. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so it's it's a beautiful way of thinking about that we can all do this. We don't necessarily have to be in positions of power, but but yeah. we can all benefit from from this calmness. I mean, I'm sure it's better for our health and a number yes. of other things. Oh, totally. For stress management, it make you a better parent, make you a better spouse, a better friend, a better human being, you know. Mm. One of my tests is to consider, you know, if I'm on my deathbed at 125 or whatever and I'm looking <laughs> back on my life. Yeah, really. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm looking back on my life, how would I regard this moment and this choice? Would mm. this have been something I'm proud of and say, yeah, you came from your higher self in this moment or no, you didn't. And I think people who come from their higher self a lot end up being these spiritual exemplars. I don't think Gandhi had positional authority on some org chart of the British Empire. Exactly. <laughs> it was so powerful. Look yeah. at that leadership. We are leaders by our lives. And I often say leadership is inside out. It's personal before it's ever professional. Positional authority has so little actual power. The genuine influence comes from who you are and how you show up and how you interact with other human beings. The era of position was all that mattered is long behind us. Well, that's actually good news, I think. It's just getting our social structures and our political structures to follow. So perhaps as more people wake up, take the test, start practicing some of the suggestions you may have we'll talk about in a minute that um that we could all develop in this way Mm. so we have uh maybe six seven minutes left what are some of the practices that we could start doing on a daily basis to help improve our spiritual intelligence right well understanding that eq precedes sq their interconnected intelligences allows us to look at the neuroscience research that underpins emotional intelligence and then consider what the emerging neuroscience is also showing about sq in the eq world one of the things that's very clear is that the limbic system and the neocortex are two different parts of the brain that i jokingly say but it's also true, have different agendas. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the limbic system wants to keep you safe and alive. It really does not care if you are happy or productive or on your life purpose. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> your neocortex cares about are you happy, productive, and on your life purpose? Is your life meaningful? Your limbic system just wants to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. These two sometimes get in each other's way because the ego is hyper-reactive. The limbic system is hyper-reactive to any perceived, even possible threat, which creates so much drama in our lives because we make up stories about possible threats. Well, you know, so-and-so corrected me in the meeting. He's clearly gunning for my job. I need to show him, you know, blah, blah. You know, we just, we perceive a threat, whether it's there or not, and then we go into hyperdrama around it. So this is all limbic system stuff, but it actually can end up creating misery in our lives. The, the frontal part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, is where we get our executive control, our impulse control, our ability to make the best kind of choices from an EQ and an SQ standpoint. We have to calm our limbic system to do that. And we have to, over time, actually, for SQ, reprogram the limbic system to be less reactive. 
the key to that is long, slow, deep belly breaths mm. and intentionally inserting a pause when you're about to react. Wow. <laughs> it sounds really simple, but it's hard, right? Because we're in that reaction. So we're in the moment, we're being hijacked by our limbic system. Uh, Daniel Goleman calls it amygdala hijack. So the amygdala, part of the limbic system, is trying to take over. Because, oh, threat, threat. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Learning to identify that sensation in the body of when we're getting tense, when we're having that reaction, and breathing deeply triggers the parasympathetic nervous system calms the sympathetic, which is what's been activated, and allows the neocortex to come back online. It actually changes blood flow. The sympathetic nervous system robs us of IQ points by stealing blood away from higher brain functions and sending it to our muscles and our lungs for fight or flight. Wow. So you know that if you see a a manager or a leader running around screaming that they aren't being as intelligent as they could be. Is that a fair statement? They have absolutely lost IQ points, and they're in reaction as opposed to a creative responsiveness. And higher self wants the most appropriate, creative, you know, wise, compassionate response. So you got to calm that chicken little down that gets going. So pause between the stimulus and response long, slow, deep belly breaths to get the blood flow back to the higher brain so that you can make better choices. That's like the most foundational of all of this stuff, and it helps for both EQ and SQ. Well, that's so amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's something our listeners can start doing right away. So do you, we have about 30 seconds left. Do you um, have any final thoughts? Or uh, Final thought is don't believe the stuff you think. We assume things to be true, and that leads to a lot of drama. In fact, I have a bumper sticker plastered on my uh, desk here that says, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Well, it looks like we are out of time. So, Cindy, Cindy, thanks so much for being my guest today. I hope you'll come back and visit us again. Thanks, Olivia. You're welcome. So next week, we're taking a holiday break for Thanksgiving, but be sure to tune in the following week when my guest will be Dr. Rian Eisler, internationally known for her work in cultural transformation and author of the best-selling book, The Chalice and the Blade, and we'll be talking about her latest book, The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economy. So be sure to tune in. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.